3.17-21 and Philippians. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Grass withers, flower fades, but the Word of our God abides forever. Let's go to Him in prayer. Father, we do ask that as we come before this Word this morning, as we've sang and prayed and confessed our faith, Lord, that You would draw near to us as we seek to draw near to You. Be at work in and by Your Spirit in our lives. Strengthen each of us to hear Your Word. Lord, convict us, encourage us, uplift us, admonish us where we need it. Do so, Lord, for your glory and the good and joy of your people and your church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Many of you have heard these words from St. Augustine before. You move us to delight in praising you, for you have formed us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Very often we refer to this quote because of the call to find rest in God and that apart from finding rest in Him, our hearts will remain restless. They will continue to search. And that's absolutely true. I think there's another aspect to this quote. That's that we've been formed for God. We've been created to give praise, to, to glorify, to be conformed to the likeness of Christ in our thoughts and actions and affections. Honestly, that is, I think, actually part of finding rest in the Lord. The more we are conformed to Him, the more we will rest in Him. It's learning to walk according to the way of the cross. It's pursuing Christ in all things, and it's longing to be with Him. But it's also realizing in all of that that being made for Him means that we are actually made for a better home. We are citizens of another kingdom. And we're called to live in a way that represents that home. This morning we come to a text that addresses much of that. Uh, Paul is continuing in, his, uh, in, in this exhortation, and he's continuing really from what he began back in chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul's desire, his, his charge is that believers would live lives worthy of the gospel. Not to earn the gospel, obviously, but to worthily reflect the truth and the glory of the gospel of grace. Now, in some sense, this section gives a, a three-part call. It starts with a command that's followed by two reasons. The command is, 
emulate. Emulate Paul. Emulate him. Imitate him and, and those who follow Christ rightly. And then two reasons, which all still kind of word as commands, are to eschew, which we don't use that word very much. I'm not sneezing. Um, it means to avoid, uh, but it follows the E there, right? So to eschew those who are enemies of the cross and then to expect the return of Christ. This, is, has this entire letter proven to be, though, I think is a challenging passage for many reasons, and I pray that our hearts are open to hear and that the, that the Spirit would work mightily in each of us. So verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Imitation. So much of what we learn in our lives is caught, isn't it? It's caught by following others. It's by imitation. There's a saying, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Imitating another says that you desire to be like them. We're, we're, shaped by, we're shaped in our lives by those we imitate. Kids will imitate what they see and hear from their parents. They'll sound like their parents, imitate their actions. A young girl will discipline or just talk to her dolls and sound awfully close to her mother. And not to embarrass my oldest here, but sometime recently we were doing something as a family. And yeah, that's him over there. Both of us ended up sitting down in exactly the same way. And to state the obvious, that wasn't me imitating him. Okay? That was him having lived with me for 17 years and picking up some of my mannerisms. And sometimes that's neutral, like that. Sometimes, uh, you know, I'm really glad that he's picked something up, or that my other kids, and sometimes, honestly, I'm not so glad they've picked up things from me. Paul, though, was confident in the way he lived. We know he was this master theologian. He could run circles around anyone in regard to knowledge, but we also know knowledge is not enough. It is certainly necessary to have knowledge, but it's also vitally important to put that teaching, that knowledge into practice, to shrink the dichotomy that all of us experience between what we profess and what we live. And when you do that, and you do it well as Paul did, you can confidently call on others to emulate you, to imitate you. He's done this in other letters. In 1 Corinthians, he does it twice. 4.16, he says, I urge you, be imitators of me. And then in 11.1, 1, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And I think that second one is vitally important because it clarifies what we imitate, what we're called to imitate here. We're called to imitate the life of Christ in other believers, the life of God in the soul of man. It's not Paul's life, but the life of Christ lived in him. And he also knew that he wasn't the only one worthy of emulation. He actually tells the Philippians, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. There are many great examples in life to follow. Folks, one of the things is, this is a... I think this is a wonderful plus of intergenerational church ministry. This is why we don't have our older kids and others out of the service until they graduate high school and college. We all need to be a part of that intergenerational ministry and learn to emulate those who follow Christ, 
The younger need to learn from the older and wiser, those who have lived life and walked with the Lord through various circumstances. I also think this is the value of reading Christian biography. We can see how men and women of faith through the years have lived in various ways and in various circumstances, how they've responded to difficulties. Read the story of Corey Ten Boom or read of the life of Hudson Taylor. Not long ago, I, I listened while I was riding my bike to the biography of John Newton. Absolutely amazing story. The power of grace in his life, how it transformed uh, this man from a, a pretty callous slave trader to a man with a tender and absolutely pastoral heart. And for me personally, then I've picked up some of his, his letters, uh, what he calls the letters from the heart, and they've been wonderfully helpful in seeing how a pastor relates to people. So Paul charges us to keep our eyes on, to focus upon them. And, and I think actually this is somewhat of a contrast of what we saw in 3.2. If you back up to chapter 3, verse 2, what do you read? Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. There was a warning. You know, see them. Look out for them. Avoid them. Here's an invitation. See these people. Keep your eye on them. Focus on them and live like them. Take note of how they live, of how what they profess is actually aligned with how they live, and how when they fail, because folks, we will all fail, they repent, they turn to the cross of Christ for solace and for healing. But one thing about this text is, it's, it's not merely a call to observe and to emulate, when you, when you read a text like this, there's an implicit call. There's an explicit command, but there's an implicit one as well. And the implicit command is, live a life worthy of being emulated. Right? Because if, if we don't do that, who is the next generation going to imitate? Live your life in such a manner that you would feel good enough to say, imitate me. That's challenging. You know, think about it then. What needs to change for that to be a reality in your life? What are those areas in your life where you're like, oh, don't imitate that? <laughs> Where's the Lord working to conform you more and more to his image? Where do you see that dichotomy between what you profess and what you live? Maybe even a better question is, where do others see it? And what have they pointed out? Because we have blind spots. So there's a call to, to emulate, but also that implicit call to be worthy of emulation. But Paul also gives a warning in this text a reason why that is so important. Look at verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. 
Now, why does Paul feel the need to, to talk about those who don't walk according to Christ? Well, in essence, following the flow, he's saying, hey, don't emulate those people. Don't emulate them because they're, you'll, you'll be following them to your own doom. And this, therefore, is some of the impetus for emulating those who do walk according to the gospel. Because Paul knows the pull, the, the, the pull of the world and those in it, but he also knows how very harmful is any way that is opposed to the way of the cross. And until we are perfected in glory, we will know the pull of temptation and sin. We will succumb to the pull of temptation and sin. And so Paul wants us, as I, I labeled the section, to eschew, to, to avoid those who live in this manner. Remember, imitation is a major way we learn. So who we are around and who we watch, those are the ones we're going to learn from. And Paul wrote many here, didn't he? Now, who are these many? Honestly, the text doesn't tell us. It doesn't make it clear. There's, there's no way of understanding exactly who it is, but it really doesn't matter. What matters is the description, what Paul tells us, and even in the manner in which he tells us these things. Because he says, I've warned you before and often, and he, he doesn't do this in a way to, to just stir up controversy and to call out Joe and John and everybody else. He doesn't do any of that. He actually does this out of a heart that seeks to protect the flock of God. He does it with tears. He does it because his heart is pained. His heart's pained because he wants to protect the sheep. He knows the pain that these people can cause, but I think he also is in tears because he knows the pain that awaits those who continue to walk in this manner. Let's look at how Paul worded this. And actually, oftentimes I like to ask, you know, why didn't he write it this way? Or why did he put it exactly this way? So why not simply write, for many of whom I've often told you and now tell you with tears, they're enemies. They're bad dudes. That, that would have communicated danger, right? But instead, he very, very purposefully wrote, not, not just enemies, but walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Not even just enemies of Christ, but enemies of the cross of Christ. When you think about it, you talk to about anyone on the street, they're, they're cool with Jesus, Right? They like Jesus. Jesus is fine. He's a great moral teacher. You know what they're not fond of, right? The cross. People in the world are not fond. They, they, they don't want to talk about that. And they'll, they'll slough it off and say, oh, well, that's just child abuse or something like that because they don't want to see that, that thing that actually exposes their sin for how horrific and, and, and abominable it is. The cross exposes the true color of our sin and rebellion in all its horrific reality. And so in many ways, when he's saying those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, he's saying those who walk antithetical to grace. And those who, who live by self-justification, those who live for self. And we're going to see that come out more and more. This is how Paul describes these enemies. He says first, their end is destruction. 
their end. The, the end of the road they are on is destruction. There's nothing but eternal loss and damnation. They are on the proverbial road to perdition. The contrast, actually, if you went back to Psalm 1, you know, blessed are those who um, meditate on his law, who walk in his ways. And then in verse 4, Psalm 1 says, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will what? Will perish. Their end is destruction. It's important to know that end, the, the, the word, the telos of, of somebody and of someone's path. But beyond that, he also wrote, their God is their belly. Now, this is a very interesting way, a kind of a provocative way of him explaining something. And what it's telling us is that those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ follow and pursue their own appetites of all types, of all types. They follow their appetites. This is where they, they believe uh, that they find their satisfaction and purpose. One commentator wrote this. He said, their appetites and emotions have ceased to be subject to them and have been accorded the place of lordship and worship. They are governed by self-pleasing and bodily matters. Paul does not elaborate. He does not call them fornicators or drug addicts or particularize their, their pet sensualities. If he did so, we might stand aloof from the warning if it did not happen to apply to us. And then here's the key sentence. The warning is not against particular sins, but against the underlying sin of pandering to self. The bodily sin is never far beneath the surface, even of the most advanced saint, and the warning is always necessary. He's warning against the underlying sin of pandering to self. Ouch pandering to self. And this can manifest itself in so many ways. Laziness, gossip, sexual indulgence, pornography, etc., anger, control issues, and on and on. Think of where yourself fights for its own rights. Paul warned about those who are self- seeking and, and seeking that self-gratification as their highest end. He, he warned about it in the letter to the Romans. Romans 16, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. And then he writes, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. Which sounds a lot like, emulate me as I follow Christ, avoid these. Be wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Avoid those who, who are governed by their appetites. Paul isn't done. He says they glory in their shame. 
That's not the way it's supposed to be. That which should be and truly is occasion for shame is turned into something to take pride in. They glory in it. It's a reversal of moral standards. It's turning them on their head. Now, I don't generally like to get caught up in, in calling out specific things, but I think sometimes there's just glaring examples in the world of some of these things. Shout your abortion. Folks, it's one thing to wrestle and struggle over a horrendous deed, which is wrong nonetheless, but to take pride in the killing of life is abhorrent. If you're on social media, you could do the hashtag, shout your abortion, and you'll see videos of it, of people talking about how they are proud that they did it so they could have the life they have now. What about a pride parade? Is that not the most ironic name? Pride Month starts in a couple days. Taking rebellion against God's created order and moral standards and celebrating it. And some of you, if you follow the news of the, the church world and some of this Church Too and Me Too movement, the SBC, uh, not, not to pick on them in any ways because this could happen in any church, but just had a report by a third party about sexual abuse in the church and how their executive committee covered up almost 700 instances of sexual abuse because they said it would distract from the preaching of the gospel. I'm sorry, that is turning God's moral standards on their head, and it's wrong. And this bent, you can see it. I mean, if it, if it comes out there, this bent is so strong in humanity to glory in what is shameful. Folks, when we defend our sin, when we make excuses, we attempt to reverse those moral standards. We're trying to, in a sense, hack the system and reset it to whatever we want, and we thumb our noses at what God has set forth. It's giving yourself to your appetites and then seeking to justify them. And this is not a new phenomenon. The prophet Isaiah called out people for this very thing, Isaiah 5. Woe to those who call good, or who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight who call good, evil, and evil, good. From the beginning, men and women have sought their own moral standard. And Scripture isn't always specific because the point of something like this and a text like this is the root issue. Setting ourselves first. Pandering to the self. It's honestly impossible to read this description of Paul and not have my mind turned to the beginning of Romans. And you could really read from 121 through the end, and I'm just going to read some of it here, starting in 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images 
resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And then verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You can read that whole section and you see these appetites, you see the end of destruction, the glory in shameful practices, and beyond that, drawing other people into that shame itself and saying, it's good, come join. Folks, this will happen because of sin, because of the fall, but also one of the things that I, that I think Paul goes to next in Philippians helps frame it all. He says they set their minds on earthly things. In some ways, that's the root of the trouble. Where are our minds set? Where are our minds focused? Our minds, our hearts, that's where our life is animated. Keep your heart or your mind, whatever, with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. What our minds are set upon will drive us. And set on earthly things is exactly the opposite of what Paul calls us to. It's the exact opposite. Colossians 3, and there's many other passages we could go to, but Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ... So if you're a believer, if you've been raised with him, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You've died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Set your minds on the things above. Seek the things above. Our affections and our mindset are not to be earthbound. Our minds are to be set on the place where our king and our citizenship actually resides. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Folks, we are not to live according to the world. We are not to emulate the world because that's not where our true citizenship is found. Paul, Paul says, says, you know, imitate me because our citizenship is in heaven. That's, that's where we're looking towards. That, that's what we're looking to. We seek to emulate then those who walk according to the gospel, those that have their eyes lifted properly to the Lord, those that know where their home is. And we're to live according to that homeland. Recently, I don't know if you saw it in the news, two Secret Service agents were sent home from South Korea because they got into a scuffle off-duty and they were sent home because they did not represent the United States or the Secret Service properly. 
Uh, and, you know, if you've seen the movie A Few Good Men, and if you haven't, it's old enough that I can give away the ending here. Um, but the two Marines, they're convicted at the end, even though they were ordered to do what they did, they were convicted of conduct unbecoming of a Marine. They, they, didn't, they didn't live the way a Marine was to live. Folks, there's a standard of conduct. Live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We're to live according to our home and represent that home well. But not only are we to live according to it and represent it, but we're to long for it. And when, honestly, when we think about this world, longing for that home should not be all that hard. And when our eyes and our minds are set on that home, we'll long for him. The, the text says, we await a Savior. You, you could really put it as we eagerly wait for our Savior. We're eager. We, we need to have that more and more in the forefront of our, of our thoughts and our heart and an expectation of Christ returning. You know, saints throughout the ages have expected Christ to return in their lifetime. I'm not going to get into end time stuff here or anything like that, but we have lost that expectation. We have lost that cry in our hearts of, Come, Lord Jesus, come. You, you could be here tomorrow. You could be here by, before the end of the service, before my next word. We've lost that expectation. And we need, we need it restored. Paul had it. You, you see it in all his, his writing in 2 Timothy 4. He says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have what? Who have loved his appearing, who have loved and longed for his coming back. And not only do we await this because we know that Christ will come back, but we await this because we know we'll be changed. We feel the pain, the affliction of this life. We will actually be rescued. We'll be saved from the frustrations and the miseries of living in the flesh. And when I say those words and I keep it here, I am eager for that transformation. I'm eager for that return. I'm eager to be with Christ where he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Folks, Paul has an extended exposition of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. I encourage you to read it sometime and I'll, I'll refer to part of it, but one of the things he says in there is that we do not hope in Christ for this life only. And if we do, we're, we're fools most to be pitied. There's an eternal, there's eternity with Christ that awaits us. We hope in Him for the resurrection where we will all be changed. 
where what is perishable will be raised imperishable, where, where what has sown in dishonor will be raised in glory, where what is sown in weakness will be raised in power. And pick up in, in verse 53 of 1 Corinthians 15. It says, For this perishable body must put on the, it must, okay, must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he finishes that section up. It's so interesting. This whole section on the the resurrection and the glory of being united with him. And he says at the end, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The way he animates them to continue to walk with the Lord is telling them they're going to be united to Christ and everything will be changed. They'll go from perishable to imperishable, from dishonor to glory, from weakness to power. Folks, hear those glorious words. Take them to heart. Know that it will happen. Long for it to happen. Long for that change. And know this, nothing will stop it from happening. It may be today. It may be next week. It may be a thousand years from now. No one knows but the Lord. But the one thing we do know is it will happen, and everyone in Christ will be changed will be united to Christ in glory, will be presented as a pure and spotless bride. Because there is no power shortage for our Savior. Paul writes, he'll he'll do this by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So if, and, and I'll say since, he has the power to subject all things to himself, all things. That's the revolution of the earth around the sun. The distance, the, 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 the proper uh, mix of nitrogen and hydrogen and oxygen in our atmosphere the, so that we actually live all these things. He holds it together by the very word of his power. If he has the power to do that, he can change us, and he will. He will. He will transform his children, and there. There's, there's hope in this. There's hope. There's, there's motivation in all of this. 1 John chapter 3. Three verses of, of 1 John 3. They're beautiful. So it's, See or behold what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know, we know, folks, we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And then again, listen to how 
it finishes after this, this beautiful statement of the resurrection and, and coming to be with Christ. Everyone who thus hopes in Him. So everyone who has his, his mind set on this, his, his eyes fixed on this, his hope there away from self and towards the Lord purifies himself as he himself is pure. Setting our minds on Christ and looking to others who walk according to the way of Christ, of, uh, avoiding those who walk according to the world, that purifies us as we set our minds on him. All of this, it's a continual pressing on toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's counting everything as loss compared to what is there for us in Christ and what will be. Folks, this is what Paul strained after. He was so caught up by this vision. He longed for all believers to be caught up and to pursue this, to emulate, to emulate him and those who, who continue to walk in the same way, to stay focused on what matters, to hope, to eagerly await the resurrection. Folks, Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. Let's pray. Father, be at work in us. Transform us. Work your conforming power in us even now. Help our minds to be focused on what is good and, and right and true. Convict us and encourage us to walk away from the pandering to self. Lord, teach us to be more like Christ. In all things we pray, amen.